All right, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts 23, as our helpers are coming up here, we'll take the time to turn to Acts 23. We're uh, continuing our study in the book of Acts, and it's a progressive study um, if you're new with us today. And um, what we'd like to do today is go through this, this chapter in its entirety, we'll read it, and we're going to pick out some highlights and uh, take a little step back from uh, following it verse by verse. We will make comment of it. And in the historical meaning and where it stands and, and what's going on, we will make comment. But I'd like to look at the practical, especially tonight. Um, seeing that tonight you have the opportunity, if you're here, we're going to be meeting at the Johnson, Band, uh, Johnson Street Bandshell. It's on uh, A1A or Ocean Drive, um, right there on Johnson Street. And it's an opportunity to witness, to be, uh, uh, um, to fulfill what God has called you to do. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, here's the opportunity. Right? It's not the only opportunity, but it is something that we're doing collectively as a body here. But and that is is the gospel. And we're just going to look at uh, a couple of of questions here, and what the answer is very simple. And 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 look at Paul's life and how it applies to us and what it means to us today. And so if you look in Acts 23, if you're not already there, we're going to start in verse 1. We'll read the uh, chapter in its entirety. It's only uh, 35 verses. So here in Acts 23, And Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And as he said this, there arose a dissension among the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there arose a great uproar and some of the uh, scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn into pieces and, and ordered the troops to go down and take him away by force and to bring him into the barracks. But on the night immediately following, on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side. Take courage, saying, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. And when it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who formed this plot. And when they came to the chief priests and elders, and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. 
Now therefore you, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. For we, are, for, we, uh, for we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes to the place. But the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, and he, entered, he came and entered the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the lead, uh, centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, stepping aside, and inquired him privately, What is it that you have to report to me? He said, The Jews have agreed to, bring you to, to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council as though they were going to inquire, uh, going to inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. Do not listen to them, for more than 40 of them are lying in wait, who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat nor drink until they slay him. And now they are ready, ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, Tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him two of the centurions and said, Get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night. Proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. And they were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and to bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote um, a letter having this form, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. When this man was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up with them and uh, with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And, having, and wanting to ascertain the charge for which they accused him, I brought them down to their council and found him to be quite accused over questions about their law, but no, under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. And when I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him up to you at once, also instructing that his accusers, be, uh, be, uh, accusers to bring charges against him before you. So the soldiers did according according. In accordance to their orders, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatis. And, but the next day, leaving the horsemen to go on, they returned to the barracks. And when, the, and when these had come to Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor, and they presented Paul to him. And when they read it, they asked, uh, from what, he asked what province was he, what province was, uh, he was. And he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also, giving orders to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So let's look to the Lord one more time. Now, Father, we just ask that you open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. In Lord Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Okay, so where we are in this chapter, and as, a book of, as the book of Acts as a whole, to get a broad view of what's going on, um, the Lord Jesus has ascended. He's given them, the disciples, those who had fallen, orders. Uh, what to occupy themselves now that He is gone. There's something going on. God's not done working in the world. He's given them a task while His Spirit is working already in the world, doing everything that God needs to do. We have a, we have a small part, right, to be a witness to the Gospel. And He's given it to them. And we see this progression. And, and Luke... Uh, um, with the Holy Spirit's guidance, skillfully writes down different stories. They're not just there for history lessons. They're there for us to 
pay attention, to heed, to learn things about. And so generally the first couple chapters is about Peter. Then this, uh, shortly after Stephen's death, there's a great dispersion. And then this man comes on the scene, this uh, practically uh, a terrorist, Paul, and he's going at uh, Saul at the time. He's going after Christians. He meets the Lord. And then he's miraculously saved. He, he, he proves, uh, it says later, Paul says he would not prove disobedient to the heavenly calling. He realized himself before God as a guilty, hell-deserving sinner. He received by faith the grace gospel. And then the next couple chapters, there's there's several missionary journeys. We looked at them last time uh, I was up, but there's at least three missionary journeys. The first one is through Asia. The next one's through Greece. And then the third one, he kind of passes through everyone to check up on. The fourth one, we're coming up on it, is when he's eventually sent from here to Rome. We're given a little... Um, uh, foreshadowing by the Lord telling him, I need you to go to Rome, and he's going to protect them along the way. We read that verse. But where we are here is that he, came to, he, he has come back from the third missionary journey, and now he's going to Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem. He has done nothing. The disciples have come to him and said, well, you know what, there's, there's a lot of things being said about you. And, and, and some of the Jewish Christians and some of the Jews are taking offense to the things you're doing. They think that you're, you're telling them to, you're telling everybody everywhere to, to, uh, to, um, to reject the, some of the mosaic practices and the customs. And in Paul, following through, not wanting to give offense to those Jewish Christians, followed through with some of the things and purified himself. And then these Jews that were in Asia that knew about Paul, that chased them out every, every city, were there. Because it was, uh, you know, it was the Passover. And so they came down. They captured Paul. They wanted to, to kill him. But after his defense in 22 to them, now the, the commander who rescued him wants to see what the Jewish council, which was the governing body, pseudo-governing body of the day. There are a lot of aristocrats, Sanhedrin. We'll talk about them in a second. But this is where we find Paul. And... First thing we want to look at is, and Paul looking intensely, intently at the council. And one of the first things that we find is, what was Paul, uh, what to, and this is the first thing we want to look at. Thank you, Joanna, for writing this. That's her nice handwriting. Mine's the green, obviously, now. It's nice and ugly, but you can read it. What to fight for. This is the first thing that we look in application-wise at Paul's experience. He was fighting. He was defending. He was out there. First, there's an offense, right? He's out there uh, uh, planting the uh, churches. He's presenting the gospel. But now it's shifted. People have come against him. They're challenging him. Well, God never really said that, right? Or, or there's another way. These were religious people. They had the same scriptures Paul was preaching from. But they were coming against him saying that he, uh, there was a lot of blasphemy involved. They, it says these Jews, they proved themselves unworthy of eternal life. They judged their own selves. They didn't want anything to do with God's plan. They were false uh, prophets, false teachers. And now the Christian is called to defense. And what to fight for? We we think about this a lot. You know, a lot of times, um, you know, especially in in Hollywood and in movies, you know, there's a lot of uh, direction between fighting for, you know, noble causes. You know, you got to fight for love. You know, get your sword out, do some swashbuckling, and, and, and go rescue that, you know, the, the damsel in distress, right? Rescue. But 
Is that fulfilling to the soul? Sure, you know, it does bring some, you know, uh, happiness, gratification, but doesn't fill fully. And then perhaps, you know, there's some in this world that they, they fight for, for human rights. It's a good thing, right? It's a noble cause, right? You know, against slavery, against uh, dictators, to people that are oppressing uh, the freedoms that uh, the government, especially this government and other, that would um, seek to, uh, to, to give to individuals, you know, the, the Constitution, as, as much as you know, it seems to be religious, they were definitely deist, ungodly people that wrote that Constitution. But they said, you know, that's a right given by God. Freedom, right? For, fight for human rights. Some people think that's what it's about. But most of the time, and I think entirely everybody, my, me included, we fight for ourselves. We put ourselves there and we conduct our lives and we direct our lives to fight for ourselves. Either it's at work, make sure I'm getting the most pay, promote myself up the ladder, step on whoever I have to step on. What about in our own friend circles, you know? I'm only going to stick with those people who, who make me feel better and, and I'm not going to reach out in my own circle and in my own comfort zone. It's a selfish attitude, right? I'm, I'm included in that. Fight for myself. I don't want to feel uncomfortable. What about even at the workplace or at school when the gospel or something religious comes up? Do I speak up? So Paul, as we look at his life, and this is the thing. There's a book that I'm reading right now, and one of the key phrases, and it's not original with the author, is he says this to the Christian. It's, it's, it's talking about... Um, disciplining your lives by grace. But he says this, preach the gospel to yourself every day. I mean, what, as believers, I don't know about you, when I read that, I said, well, immediately I thought, well, who's the gospel for? It's for the unbeliever, right? It was for me before I, I came to know Christ. But as a believer, we kind of look at this timeline of our life. We say, before I knew Christ, I needed the gospel. There was a point in my life, I became saved, and now after, what is it in the Christian life? We label it discipline, uh, um, prayer, and, and, and those things are good. But what happened to grace? We tend to go through life and we push through and we put these boundaries on our life and we try to live the Christian life when the thing that's going to bring us through is the grace of God. And we realize that we are brought into a relationship with God with nothing that we did. That God in His... We are just uh, uh, thinking about this morning His mercy. It's who He is. He's gracious. He's loving. It's God acting on our behalf. And Paul, as we see an example, what he fought for was the gospel. And we too. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Realize that you are that hell-deserving sinner and that God has, has granted redemption through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by grace that we are saved. And it's by grace that we live the Christian life. We continue on. The next thing. And he said to the council, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up until this day. When I first read this, I said, Whoa, that's a pretty uh, bold statement, right? Does that mean he was perfect? By no means, right? We read later that he, he said he was the worst of sinners. We see that from his life. The guy was a terrorist. He came in people's home, dragged them away because they were true Christians, and 
Even it says at Stephen's death, where they were stoning this man, a very ugly, violent death, he was in agreement with it. But the thing is, about Paul's statement, is that at that time, until the, God laid hold of that man's life, he thought he was doing God a favor. His conscience did not bother him, did not cross him. And if there was sin, guess what? He, he followed the law, right? He, he did the things that God prescribed. He gave sacrifices. And this whole thing about conscience, you know, what is the role of conscience in this world today? Very famous um, portion of Scripture, but Romans 1, it says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because, it, because that which is known about God is evident within them and God made it, God made it evident to them. And so what is, what is this world? Those who are not believers who say no to God, God has given them evidence. Today, Lord willing, if you go out today, you're going to meet people. The guy out here that we just, uh, not too long ago, I didn't see him this today, he's out there picketing saying, God, Jesus isn't God. Who revealed that to him? At one time in his life, God did reveal something, I bet. And he said, no, thank you. That's ungodliness. Ungodliness isn't just you know, the, the gross sins that we think of the world. Ungodliness are moral people that say they're trying to cast off God. They want nothing to do with them. You know, they try to remove God or anything to do with the Bible out of history. That's ungodliness. And what the world is, it, they have suppressed, it says here, uh, they have suppressed their, uh, their conscience, the evidence that God has given them. There's other evidences too. It's not the only one. And they have suppressed their conscience in unrighteousness and ungodliness. And so the role of the conscience today is to move people to God. And what are we and everybody else is striving for? What to strive for? They want, to, they want their conscience to be appeased. You know, they do something wrong. What do they do? Well, I've got to list a couple of things here to make myself feel better now. Right? Ooh, I just... I don't know, everybody has something, right? I mean, some people, their consciences are different and they get, you know, it gets crossed somehow. But generally, there's a sin done and they try to do something about their conscience. Sometimes they don't even really care. It's called the searing of the conscience, right? And it's these people here that continually push off God, ungodliness, and there's a downward spiral. They have pushed their creator off so much, it calls, there's a symptom. It's not even a disease that doctors can classify. They call it other things. It's called the reprobate mind. It's not craziness. It's because they have engrossed themselves in sin and they have pushed off God in an ungodly manner. And, and they have seared their conscience for so much. But people are striving. How can I appease my conscience? How can I feel better? Right? Sometimes we turn to, uh, the world will say, turn to different men, uh, means to dull the pain. Right? Turn to the bottle. Turn to this. Turn to other uh, inhibitors of your mind to kind of, you know, get away from the reality. But what, once Paul met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was gloriously slain. What happened to his conscience then? Well, the gospel is the answer for that. Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9, excuse me, says this. 
It says, for the blood of the bulls and goats, uh, for the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a, of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctifying the cleansing of flesh. There was a covering of sin in the Old Testament law, which Paul followed. It was the, it was the sacrifice of animals. But the conscience was never cleared because they're always linked about that I had to do this next year. I had to continue going on. My conscience still bothered me. Look at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered, him, offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God? That's the purpose of life. That's what we're striving for, is to have the conscience fully restored, to know sins have been dealt with, to be reconnected with my Creator, and to serve Him. That's why I'm created. Anything else is ungodliness and is not, well, I find is not fulfilling. Paul could say my conscience never bothered me because the minute he was, uh, the minute his sins were revealed to him, that he met the Lord Jesus, he was fighting against him. It says he was kicking against the prods of the Holy Spirit, the goads, it says. You know, that's what you use to move an animal along. He responded and he obeyed. He would not prove disobedient. And you know what's going to happen to those who, who reject the gospel? It's not because they're sinners. Yes, that is true. But it says in Thessalonians that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself is going to come back because in deal retribution to those who what? Do not obey the gospel. There's a call to obedience to obey the gospel, to receive it by faith. So what to strive for? is a clean conscience. How can we have a good conscience? The answer is, same as this one is the gospel, the greatest gospel. We can stand before God with our conscience clear, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Having our conscience, it's already done, pured, and no longer can anything be brought up. And then, let's continue on to um, verse 2. It says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. The next thing I noticed about this is, you know, this council was a, was a mix of, of various people. Um, you know, some of them, they were all supposedly teachers of the law. But just like today, you know, we have political parties, so did they, right? And, and even, well, even today in Christian circles, we have those that believe, you know, theologies, sometimes are dividing lines with Christians. They say, we believe this, and, you know, no, what we see it as this, and there's division, right? Even among them, there were the Sadducees at the time, Sadducees, and the Pharisees. And this man, who we think is a Sadducee himself, but he commanded those decide to strike him on the mouth. It was a show of saying, you're not right. Here's judgment. And it was a show of smacking him on the mouth or punching, whatever it is, to say that that was a lie. And that's judgment. Don't do it again. Right? That was probably one of the worst punishments I can remember. My mom usually, what I remember is the wooden spoon, right? Sass mouth. Pop! You know? Maybe not in the mouth, but on the hand or something. Right? It's the same idea. And as, as Paul would stand bef- before this man, I don't know what you were thinking in application. Is there true justice in this world right now? Do you feel that sometimes, you know what? Things are a little unjust. You know, we look at the, even if we look at our own legal system, sometimes we look and we see things that are like, man, how did that person now, granted, we don't know the entire facts, but 
We, you know, in our own minds, we say, man, this is, how can that person get off? Where's the justice? Well, there's a title that God's given, and it's not just the New Testament. It says this in Psalms. It says, Psalm 7, 11, it says, God is a righteous judge. Psalms 8, 9, 8, it says, He will judge the world in righteousness. And so while things might seem unbalanced and things might seem out of control and there's no legal true justice, God is going to judge the world in righteousness. It's a very scary thing to those who do not have the righteousness of God on them. And to wish that on somebody, that they wish... You know what? Sometimes I even heard, you know, God help us. We say that they need to get what they deserve. I wouldn't wish that on anybody in this room. And I think you wouldn't want to wish that when you think about what it means. That those who are ungodly, unrighteous, are going to meet God as their judge. And there's going to be nobody there to say, to represent him. There's going to be no Johnny Cocker and the guy's dead, but there's going to be no great lawyer there. There's going to be nobody there on their side. And guess what? They're going to see it as they're going to have to agree. They're going to see it right there that, you know what? I am guilty. And the judgment's going to be passed out. Depart from me. God is a righteous judge. He will judge the world in righteousness. And while this man was supposed to be the judge then, he was already doling out punishment right away. He wasn't acting as a righteous judge. Right? So what do we remain on? You know, there, there's a, we see a lot of injustices in the world. And we wish for judgment. Well, Paul would say this in 2 Timothy. There's a lot of you know, portions about this. He says, he, he conducted his life like this. And this is what he said. 2 Timothy 4.8. He says, In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Not to me also, but to those who have loved His appearing. And you know what? God will reward. God is taking note. And to me, to want to take matters in my own hands and to wish the evildoers to be put down, that's, I don't, you, you know, be careful, right? We don't want that. We didn't want that for ourselves, right? We, 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 sometimes I said this before, but we see somebody like uh, uh, go right past us, zoom right past us, or cut us off. Oh, we wish a cop was up there to give him a ticket, right? But then we're going over the speed limit, and then we get caught by the cops. We're like, oh, please, 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 give me mercy, you know? It's kind of like a double standard, right? But when we're talking about the internal soul and meeting God as your judge, we do not wish that for anybody. What is the answer? Is the answer for us? It's the gospel. What do we remain on? The judgments of God. Because not just his judgment, because he is the judge. And his judgments are true, they're a testament of his character. And he will reward those, a crown of righteousness. There's like several crowns, crowns of life, crowns of righteousness, different things. This one's a crown of righteousness given to those who loved his appearing. How do we love, for his, how do we love his appearing? We love the things that he loves. We do the things that he wants us to do. We involve ourselves in the things that he wants us to do, right? Not fighting for ourselves, not, not striving for the things that we want. And then, really, uh, we still got time, but... This is a little side note, but um, in Psalm 119, talking about this same theme, 
You know, what about in the circles in the church? Does God still do things righteously, right, to, to move us along, right? There's a new role that he's been given, uh, to, well, to us. He's always had it, right? He is our Heavenly Father, um, but his Son is also uh, uh, guiding us along. The, he's our shepherd, right? And sometimes uh, we as sheep go off, and he sends correction, right? And, and the way we view correction, we can read about this in Hebrews, he's training us for righteousness. But here's another verse. Uh, Psalm 119.25, it says, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are righteous, and in thy faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. That means that when I step out of line, it's not because God's some big mean person. When some affliction comes on me, because he sees the ungodly things that I would take apart or some sin that I'm toying with, and he's bringing me back to himself. And the way that I view that judgment, re- refocus that vision, refocus the, the outlook of it, that God is faithful. He has to. right? That's part of His character, but it's for our benefit. The judgments that come in our life. Just a little side note about that. But let's continue on. And then Paul would say to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to law, but in violation of law? Ordered me to be struck. We read, and history tells us, this is obviously not in, in Scripture, but Ananias was uh, eventually, not too long after, was murdered. And so God did uh, strike him down. Um, but the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? And so down to verse 6 is our next point. It says, But perceiving that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, uh, Paul began crying out in the council. Brother, and I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And so here we're introduced to these two groups of people. And we kind of said before, um, and this will lead us to our next point, that this group of people, sometimes these theologies, man-made things, uh, divide people. It did then, right? These Sadducees... um, we know that they, in this chapter, that they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in spirits, and they didn't believe in resurrection. They took the scriptures literally, and they took it straight forward. Well, how did they get to that? That's how they did. And why? What about all the things that God was talking about in, in scripture? You know, we read scripture and we see certain things that it doesn't really say that. First of all, they, you know, they weren't born again, but um, they denied the power of God. They denied the things that God was teaching. And, and they took this deistic view, which means God created things. They, they see that, that God created it in Genesis. But he took a step back. And what he did is in taking a step back, he kind of turned his back on the world and just let mankind do what they wanted to do. Right? Deistic view. God created everything, took a step back. Man decides his own destiny. There's more power in the hand of man. That was a pretty prevalent recurring theme when our, the, the, you know, this nation was founded. That's why the Constitution is written the way it is, because there's a lot of deistic views in there, that God has taken a step back, that the king who was saying that he was appointed by God, and they're trying to get out from that, well, you know what? Man can rule himself. We don't need God's appointed authority. And these, these, these Sadducees generally were the aristocratic, you know, high a wealthy people of that time, and they took this view of no resurrection, no, uh, no, 
no spirits, no angels, things like that, because it never expressly said this. Well, they actually, in Mark 12, is a very interesting uh, chapter, because the Lord Jesus met these three groups of people. They're called the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Sadducees come, and then the teachers of the law, the scribes, the, the, some of the maybe Pharisees. He met each three of those groups of people and said that they were entirely wrong and that they were missing the point of Scripture. And sometimes we can interpret Scripture and miss it. But really quick, looking at, because they're mentioned here, um, they came, the Sadducees came to uh, the Lord Jesus asking this question, saying that, you know, Moses commands that um, if a man dies, a, brother, a man's brother dies and leaves his wife, and there's no children, that the brother, the man's brother should take up his wife and raise children, right? That's a command. Well, they present this, this exaggerated, blown out of, you know, story. Well, if that's literally to be taken, and, well, that man died, and he had seven brothers, and they all, tried, they all married this woman, and guess what? They all died in a row, and then finally she died. And then they said, well, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? You know, taking a very literal look at Scripture. And they presented the Lord Jesus with this and thinking that he, they could trip him up. The person who wrote the Bible, who the Bible came from his mind, they thought they could trip him up with this question. But see, they were gravely mistaken because it says this, the Lord Jesus says, is that the reason that you are mistaken? That you do not understand the Scriptures nor the power of God. For they that rise, for they that rise from that are neither married nor given in marriage, but are like the angels of heaven. There's the answer. They said they denied it. He says there are angels. But regarding the fact that the dead rising, having not read the book of Moses, in the book of Moses, they, they took the Torah to the literal sense. He says even from there, the passage of the burning bush, how God spoke to him, says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and, Jake, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. And so the, re- the resurrection is a very key uh, a belief that we take today, right? I mean, look at Abraham and Isaac. They've been dead for 400, 500 years. There were promises God gave to them back then. And Abraham, it says, and Stephen, when in his defense, it says Abraham was given promises. Remember, if you remember the story, he went and, and believed God. He accounted him for righteousness. And Abraham never saw any of the promises. Stephen said that he walked around and never got a foothold of land. What what convinces, what drives a man on, what is the thing that keeps a person going, knowing that you don't see the promises? Sometimes we live life and, and we think of God and we pray. We're like, oh, I need this, I need this now. Help me, help me. And we want God to be like some kind of genie, right? That we rub the lamp and now it appears in front of us. And we need Him to fix our problems. But you know what? There's a hope. And it's called here in, in 26, uh, it says... I'm on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Paul was on trial for the thing that he had trusted in the, uh, uh, he, the thing, uh, the plan that God has provided, the gospel. And there's still a plan, still, uh, there's still a part still not done. It's the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the righteous, given a new body, and that's the hope. And that's what we're looking forward to. Abraham knew it then that one day he would be raised, even though it didn't say it. He knew it that one day he would come back and claim those promises that God gave to him. Same with Isaac. That's what it means in that verse. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Those people have been dead long before. So God did in those, in those uh, early scriptures, even though he didn't expressly talk about resurrection, that there would be. 
And what about the unrighteous? It's not just the righteous. Well, you know what? It says in, in, in Acts 17 that God is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man that he's appointed whom he furnished by the resurrection of the dead. And that's the Lord Jesus. And so there is going to be a resurrection of the dead. And it's going to be the righteous and the unrighteous. Those who would continually live an ungodly life that you see, uh, man, they got off clean. It's not that they're just going to disappear and go off into you know, non-existent. They're going to be raised again. They're going to face God as their judge. And they're going to be dealt with permanently. Either cast in the lake of fire, cast into the lake of fire, right? And so what is what to hope for? And Paul hoped for the resurrection of the dead because he knew that the account with God, his account with God, there was a renewed fellowship, there was a new relationship. 1 Peter uh, 1.3 says this, First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so, while... We talk about being saved. Yes, we're saved. Yes, the penalty of sin. We'll never have to face that. But you know what? The presence of sin is still there. And there is going to be a salvation. And that's what he's talking about. It's not you have to be resaved. It's already done. But either I'm going to die. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back. Give me a new body. That's what I'm hoping for. Not something here. Right? That's the greatest battle. Right? We, we tend to get caught up in the things that we see on this level, on this plane. What to hope for. Nothing of this world. What the gospel has provided. What God has provided through the gospel. The hope and resurrection of the dead. What we have in the Lord Jesus Christ who He has given to us according to His great mercy. Cause us to be born again. It's really a blessed hope, isn't it? And finally, in our closing minutes, we'll look at this last one. Down to verse 11. But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at His side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. You know, in the Christian life, I don't know about you, you know, things can get depressing sometimes. You know, and I go through certain situations, and, 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 and sometimes, you know, maybe I, I witness a little, and I speak up for the name of the Lord Jesus, and I get beat up for it. Not Maybe not physically. Some people do. And, 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 it, and it seems, man, there's nobody on my side. There's nobody helping me. And if there's anybody that could relate to that, it's Paul himself. He says in commenting on this very trial, he says this in 2 Timothy 4. He says, at my first offense, nobody supported me. Nobody was even there. Everybody deserted me. How would you feel about that? Would you want to give up after living the Christian life? Where's his support system come from? All deserted me. And may it not be counted against them. I mean, that's pretty gracious to say, right? He doesn't want that to be that fault for them deserting them at the time of need. Why? He says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished that all Gentiles might hear. 
and that I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. And so what do we rest on? It's not the Christian circle. While God has, uh, has, has, has given, you know, the church is there and there's different functions and different pluses that we do get from Christian fellowship. Don't get me wrong. What do we rest on? Well, God, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ has taken on a new role. It's called the great high priest, as well as our good shepherd. And it says that he has been equipped to help us in time of need. And who, I mean, who else would you look for in that time where, you know, Paul's there witnessing. He doesn't know what's going to happen the next day. We see it. We, this is 2020 history. We, we know what's going on. We know the next verse. But say on that night, the Lord Jesus comes to you and says, out of nowhere, he says, take courage. It said he stood at his side. You know what that means? The idea of standing in the Old Testament, the high priests were always standing because the work was never done. The idea of the Lord standing means that he is continually supporting the believers. It's not that he sat down after the work was done. He's still active. Stood it aside. Take courage. For as you have witnessed to me, witness for me at Jerusalem, so you must go to Rome also. The very next verse, there's 40 people that want to kill you. Has anybody had that happen? I mean, how would you feel after that? And so the great high priest has appeared to him to give him the courage. And, and the Holy Spirit has empowered him to keep going. And it's not just that. What about temptation? He, his high priest is also called after the order of Melchizedek. And the only story of Melchizedek that we have in Genesis 14 is that Abraham has come back from a great defeat. And, and we live sometimes in Christian life in the, in the high roads. And we tend to... Our minds will say, well, look at all these great things that I've accomplished for myself. I'm living the Christian life victoriously. And that's the first thing of pride, right? But who's there to meet Abraham before this actually happens, before the temptation comes, which is the king of Sodom, in the form of the king of Sodom, it's the high priest, Melchizedek. Out of nowhere he appears. And to remind him that God has given him everything that he needs. And God has provided it for him. And that's the truth. And it reinvigorated Abraham to give that king of Sodom the answer. And so where do we find grace to help in time of need? It's the throne of grace. Who sits there? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's our great high priest. He's standing and he's active. And so who do we rest on? Yes, it, you know, the rest were the gospel, but this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? And as our great high priest, and, and Paul would continue, it's not just I get saved and you know, everything's great and glorious from then on. Right? Do I need encouragement? Do you need encouragement? Absolutely. Who do we rest on? The Lord Jesus Christ. He will give us uh, encourage. He will give us grace and help in time of need when we're being tempted, when we need it, when we're out there doing things for Him, and everything is beating up the world's beating up on us. He is there on our side. Who is greater than He? Nobody. Nobody. Remember that He will judge the world in righteousness. While things seem out of control right now, you are on the winning side if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. We have a hope in the resurrection of the dead. We're looking forward for that, to be given a new body. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus this morning, and I guarantee you there might be, there is some in this room, I bet. I don't know the hearts. But you know what? The grace gospel is for you, just as it is for the believer. The grace gospel is for you. It's the Lord Jesus. God in His love and mercy has shed upon, uh, shed upon the entire world. And His justice is fulfilled in what the Lord Jesus accomplished on the cross. Your sins have been placed upon Him. Are you tired of working for your sins? You're tired of trying to cover it with certain things. Leaves. Things that Adam did. 
you know, nowadays drinking, things like that to wash away those kind of things. Let me numb the pain. My conscience is bothering me. The Lord Jesus Christ, His plan of salvation can fulfill, can cleanse your conscience. Come to Him today, the grace gospel. As a believer, preach the gospel to yourself every day. I say that to myself. I've got to be reminded that I was brought into this Christian life by His grace. And His grace is going to, what, is going to continue, me, uh, continue on and empower me from then on. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we just thank you for this. Uh, our Father, we just thank you for this um, portion, Lord, as we read these stories. Um, as they're not just history lessons, as they, um, they are fascinating to see how you worked and how you uh, um, delivered your servant, Lord, and how we see little things in our own life, how you worked out things and we were down when there was a uh, time of need, you come and rescued us. We just thank you for the active work of the Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest. And in accordance uh, to your will, we can come and ask and you can give, Lord. You have given us the very best. How shall you not freely give us all things, Lord? So we just thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he's continually working on our behalf. And we thank you for leading us as our, uh, as our heavenly Father. Lord, we just pray that your blessing on the rest of this day. In Lord Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.